1: I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from
2: over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We
3: need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is
1: going
0: to go. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. Good afternoon, I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up on today's programme, we'll speak to the Conservative MP Richard Holden and we'll be joined by the journalist Simon Cooper to talk about his latest book, which looks at how a group of Oxford graduates have come to dominate British politics.
3: Well, the energy crisis continues to dominate headlines with a report in The Times today warning that six million households in the UK could face blackouts this winter. That's in the event of what's being described as a reasonable worst-case scenario that Russia goes further in cutting off natural gas supplies to the European Union, resulting in widespread
0: shortages. The Times says Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng has written to the owners of Britain's three remaining coal-fired power stations to ask them to stay open past September to help ease a potential power crunch. The nuclear plant at Hinkley Point in Somerset may also be given an extension. It's due to be decommissioned this summer. And another twist in
3: the Partygate scandal about events held at Downing Street during COVID lockdowns. Reports have
0: emerged of another gathering not mentioned in Sue Gray's investigation that was published last week. This time, the reports in the Sunday Times and the Telegraph say it was Carrie Johnson, the Prime Minister's wife, who was in the Denning Street flat with friends on the evening of her husband's birthday. The Labour Party says these latest developments are evidence of another cover-up by number 10.
3: Well, let's discuss today's big issues with our first guest, Conservative MP for North West Durham, Richard Holden. Richard, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster again. Now, uh, a blow-by-blow account in the uh, Sunday Times of how uh, Number 10 uh, lobbied to try to uh, interfere with uh, Sue Gray's report ahead of its publication. Are you, are you comfortable that the Prime Minister's uh, representatives uh, tried to interfere with what, was, with what was supposed to be uh, an independent report?
2: Well, it looks to me like Sue Gray has not uh, taken any, uh, uh, any prisoners with her report. She's been pretty forthright. I think the names of some of the junior officials uh, have been omitted, and I think that's uh, fair enough. But I'm sure that those are decisions that, in the end, were taken very much by Sue Gray, and I don't think anybody could have influenced her um, on that. I don't think that she's said that uh, anybody actually influenced any of the uh, outcome of her report in the end.
0: With these reports of yet more parties being held in breach of COVID rules not included in this investigation, surely at this stage it's just scandal upon scandal uh, facing facing number 10 and facing Boris Johnson?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly know what was included and what was not included. My understanding was that this report and the police have looked into uh, everything um, relating to uh, what happened, and that's what their remit was. Um, so I'm not, I'm not clear uh, personally as to exactly what is now being talked about, because it it did seem to me that when Parliament uh, asked Sue Gray um, to look into this, uh, and also the police have obviously investigated everything, um, you know, all of this should have been dealt with in these. Uh, Reports. So let's. uh, So I'm. I'm. I'm not 100% on exactly what's. You know, where these reports of things not being looked into have come from. Because my understanding was that everything had been looked at by the police or by Sue Gray or by both, depending on the nature of the situation.
0: But will you then be asking for clarity so that this will be absolutely clear and that everyone will have full information about what happened and what rules were broken?
2: Well, I'm sure that that is something that will be uh, looked at in the coming weeks because we've got. We also have, obviously, now that uh, investigation which will start by the Privileges Committee in Parliament, um, and we'll go and we'll have access to everything and be able to be very wide-ranging. So I'm sure that parliamentarians will indeed be looking at that across the piece. And also, obviously, we've still got to wait for Durham Police uh, and their investigation uh, to conclude into. Uh, so Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner and the MP for City of Durham, uh, Mary Foy and their staff. Because we've seen the Sunday Times reported a few weeks ago, um, sort of all, all sorts of behaviour there as well. with people quoting that people were getting drunk, some people, uh, you know, uh, who are there. So there's all sorts of stuff going on there as well. So um, there's, there's, there's plenty to still look into, I think, on this.
3: Some estimates that about uh, twenty odd letters have gone into the 1922 committee uh, calling for a, a leadership challenge. Uh, I, I take it you're not one of the ones who've submitted a, a letter. W- were you ever sort of close to submitting a letter to, for a leadership challenge?
2: Well, I think I've always been very clear on this, and that's if the pri- if the privileges committee finds in any way that the prime minister has deliberately uh, misled Parliament, then then obviously. I, I wouldn't think that he could stay in those circumstances. Um, but I've also said that um, it's quite clear from me and from seeing the Prime Minister in the Chamber um, that over the course of events, you know, he has found out more and more information about what went on. You remember a lot of these part, uh, parties and events that happened in Downing Street, he wasn't present for. He would have either been in Chequers or on, uh, uh, on other visits around the country, so physically wasn't present. Uh, and I think that a lot of what's gone on clearly happened. And as the report said, there were failings uh, in leadership. But, you know, those are also failings in leadership in the civil service uh, as well. Uh, and the prime minister has had a massive clear out. As you'll know, Dom Cummings, Lee, Cle- Lee Kane, um his own permanent private, uh, private secretary is gone, the head of the uh, the Cabinet Secretary is moving. You know, this has, there has been a huge change uh, within Number 10, and that's something that Sue Gray welcomed in her report as well, that steps were being taken. So uh, I'm glad those changes are happening, um, and I'm glad that Sue Gray has welcomed them. But obviously we need to finally get to the bottom of uh, who knew what, where, and when, and that's what the Privileges Committee is are doing, and also obviously doing police in relation to the leader of the opposition.
0: Mm. The Times newspaper, moving on to it, a different story, is reporting today that 6 million households could face blackouts this winter if a shortage of natural gas materialises. Is the, the strategy of prolonging coal and nuclear stations the right way to tackle this? Should there be a more coherent plan involving renewable energy?
2: Well, I'm glad that um, there are contingency plans there. I'm sure these have been contingencies, which Bays have been, uh, had on the back burner for a while. So I'm glad that they're... Um they're, they're sort of dusting them off and making sure that they're ready to go. Um, obviously, while the um, situation of Russia's uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine continues, um, there is going to be pressure on global energy markets uh, and particularly on the gas supply and particularly on the price of oil um, and then the knock on in potentially in the food supply as well. So that's why the government's acted. Uh, to help with household bills over the uh, last few weeks. But I think crucially as part of that, and uh, you have covered this in depth, I'm sure, is that um, the government's also tried to push towards increased drive of UK production, and particularly of oil and uh, gas. And that's something that uh, uh, I think is incredibly valuable. I think it's something we should have been doing before, um you know i've been in favor of the cambo oil field going ahead i've been in favor of the um uh, coal mine for metallurgical coal uh, going ahead in cumbria and um, i think that it's it we, we've we've just come to see over the last uh, last few months just how important uh, energy security is but also some of those uh, resource security is for some of our really key important national infrastructure and uh, nationally important industries as a baseline and I think it's really important that we, um, that we, we do that and, and we encourage as much uh, domestic production as possible, but that has that also got to be renewables as well as oil and gas. and you know we've been leading the world in um, in, in in getting our carbon emissions down and um, I think that we can go further on that. things like hydrogen i'm looking I know my constituency is just up from the port of teaside. Um, where there's a huge amount of investment going into looking into hydrogen and also into uh, extra offshore wind. And, and, you know, a few years ago, the cost of offshore wind was high compared to gas. Now it's not. Uh, And I think we need to really readable efforts in that space so that we can really be the home of a green industrial revolution in the north of England, but providing good high skilled jobs here in the UK as well.
3: So, uh, yes, yeah, more uh, renewables alongside more drilling uh, for oil and uh, more, mining, uh, uh, more mining for coal. Now, Richard, uh, the uh, government is uh, talking about uh, reviewing uh, how imperial measurements can be used more and uh, putting the crest back on the pint. Is this really a tangible benefit of Brexit? Do you think people in Durham are going to be excited by this stuff? Uh,
2: I, think, I think one of the things people talk about their height in feet and inches uh, they talk about their weight in stone or pounds generally uh, i think those are sensible things And i think one of the issues that we've seen over the over years is i think it's been absurd that people are prosecuted for selling things in pounds and that sort of thing so i'm just glad that i'm glad that some of those those odd restrictions which sort of criminalized everyday behavior on a market stall um are being removed i think that's a, a sensible thing um that people can uh, sell in in whichever way that they 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 fancy really, I think that's just um i mean, I think it's sensible I don't think it's going to be uh, absolutely revolutionary, but I think the idea that we we spent years prosecuting people um for um you know selling things in pounds and ounces, which a lot of people a lot of their customers would know and understand um rather than in metric, i think was an absurdity uh, and I think lots of those uh, sort of silly EU rules, you know, um, can be, you know, can be um, brushed away. And uh, I think that's a sensible thing to do.
0: Right. Uh, you won the North West Durham seat from Labour for its first time, for the first time since it, its creation in 1950. A new YouGov poll is saying that the Conservative Party would hold just three of 88 battleground seats. Briefly, are you worried by the numbers?
2: Uh, look, I think there's, polls go up and down in between elections. Um, Last year, uh, I had council elections and we performed even better than we had done at the general election in those council elections, uh, going from zero councillors to six councillors and going from fourth to first in terms of the popular vote.
3: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Well, we're going to discuss the uh, spend the rest of the show discussing a new book on the background of our political leaders. Eleven of the fifteen post-war British prime ministers all went to Oxford University. Well, let's speak now to Financial Times journalist Simon Cooper. He's author of Chums: How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. Simon, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, just spell out the dominance of uh, of Oxford. I don't know, if it, is it is it Oxbridge or Oxford in our political system?
1: It's very much Oxford, not Cambridge. It's, uh, the UK could be called an oxocracy. As you said, 11 of 15 prime ministers since the war went to Oxford, including all the last three. And I think a lot of it comes down to the grip of the Oxford Union, the debating society in producing, especially on the conservative side, a kind of tradition of rhetoric and um, banter and ad hominem jives that you see in Prime Minister's Question Time, of which Boris Johnson, of course, is is the master of that style, former president of the Oxford Union.
0: This isn't just the Tories, though, that that come from Oxford. This is a a broader political picture.
1: Yeah, I mean, Labour has had many Oxford leaders, Oxford-educated leaders like Clement Attlee, Harold Wilson, Tony Blair... They didn't go through the Oxford Union, so they have a slightly uh, different trajectory. And if you look at Keir Starmer, I mean, Starmer also was at Oxford the same time as Boris Johnson. They actually graduated the same summer, 1987. Starmer had done an undergraduate degree at Leeds and then come to Oxford to do a postgraduate law degree. He went through the Labour Club, which is much less rhetoric-based, much more kind of proposing motions and uh, picketing for the striking miners sort of thing.
3: Isn't it the case that that every country's top top leaders attend its top university top universities though it's it's not it's not really surprising is it that that, that 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 the the best educated people in the country end up running the country
1: well i explore this in the book i mean it's true of france you know with the difference that selection happens in one's early 20s, typically after a first degree so it's slightly less based on what school you went to and uh, more on your own achievements. And so the ENA, the École Nationale d'Administration, which the French have now supposedly abolished and are reforming, produced four of the last six presidents, including Macron. In the US, there is an Ivy League tendency among presidents. But in many countries, especially social democracies, there aren't really selective universities. It doesn't, if you grow up in Germany or Canada, Australia, Scandinavia, the Netherlands, it typically doesn't matter much which university you went to. They aren't very selective. And in those countries, social democracy is more. Selection happens much more in adulthood. You know, you start climbing the ladder after you graduate university. Of course, all these countries, people who didn't attend university of any kind, are pretty much permanently excluded from the elite. And they are understandably, so they're very bitter about it, that a big part of their life chances are taken away in teenage years. I think that is part of the reasons for populism.
0: Is it just baked in now to British politics that, you know, this is what we expect our leaders to have come from and that's where, where you know, the, the path is uh, to that journey? Does it, you know, is it excluding kind of potentially other sectors from being able to, to get there because essentially there's an acceptance that this is the club that runs the country?
1: Yeah, I think there's something very cruel about it, that 99% of British people who don't go to either Oxford or Cambridge are told at 17 or 18 years old, look, there are many establishment jobs uh, at the top of the media or the judiciary or the civil service or politics that you will never, ever be allowed to get. And there is a kind of uh, widespread deference among the population to people who went to Oxford. I mean, in the book, I try and demystify Oxford a bit and say it's not really all it's cracked up to be. A lot of it is about presentation and writing and speaking. But I think a lot of British people are educated in the idea that particularly a man who went to Eton or a similar school and then Oxford, he is born to rule. So there's something about the Boris Johnson or David Cameron that they should be prime minister, it's rightfully theirs. I think that's a widespread British attitude.
3: What was your experience of of oxford you you went you went there in the late 80s and you were a boy from a comprehensive school weren't you how, how did you how did you find it
1: well i mean like most people from comprehensives at oxford i came from a very middle class background uh, my father is an academic and so you know the, the kind of idea that the state schools are all the kind of um uh, the, the, the represent the mass of the population at Oxford, that's not true. The class is very much middle class versus upper class. I find Oxford uh, brilliant in part. I found it very hit and miss. I mean, a lot depended on whether you wanted to work. You know, if, like Boris Johnson, you didn't particularly want to do any studying, you didn't have to, there was almost no pressure. I mean, his Tuesday joke, Boris rubbed along on zero hours a week. If you wanted to work, as some people, you know, were very driven and motivated by their studies. In my book, I talk about Dominic Cummings or Ed Balls. You could get a huge amount out of the kind of one-on-ones with the tutor if you had a good tutor who was interested in you. And, you know, because it's about writing essays and because it's about then defending that essay verbally with the tutor, I mean, that's the bulk of the education. There isn't much else other than that. It it helps you to write and to speak well, but not necessarily to have deep, substantive knowledge. So I found Oxford actually very good preparation for being a newspaper columnist. I'm not sure that that's exactly what the education should be for.
0: Yeah, you, you talk about bluffing and charm being rewarded over industry and doubt. Uh, is is that something that we should worry about, if that's filtering through to our our, our public, our, our leading classes?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, typically in my day, first class degrees were handed out for people who made bold, counterintuitive, well written elegant arguments in their finals. You know, you'd write three essays in three hours, so inevitably it was a bit superficial, and if you could say, "Oh, well, the conventional wisdom about the First years War said X, but in fact, uh, Y is the correct way of seeing it," then uh, that would be more it tended to get a higher grade than some, you know, very serious scholar who went into a very nuanced exploration of all the arguments. So there, there is a kind of reward for flair and for boldness, which also tends to favour men who were more likely to make those kinds of arguments than than women. And especially public school men who, who sort of felt the manner born. They felt, well, I, I belong in Oxford. They didn't have any imposter syndrome. They'd known someone like Boris Johnson or Jacob rees Mark had known from the age of six that they would go to Oxford. So they they felt they owned the place in a way.
3: How important was Oxford in the story of the UK's most important political event of the last 50 years? D- Daniel Hannan and Dominic Cummings were both at the university uh, long before the term Brexit was w- was coined
1: yeah but what really struck me researching was that dan hanan in late 1990 when john major the new prime minister is approving the federalising mass lift treaty dan hanan is outraged and with two friends one of whom is the future ukip mp mark reckless he founds the oxford campaign for an independent britain in the queens lane coffee house on the high street and okay this is just the student society very rapidly it grows into the second biggest political society on campus, off the Oxford Union. Dan hanan then makes contact with the budding, you know, Euroskeptic MPs in Westminster. He then, as he graduates from Oxford, helps set up the European Research Group in Westminster. He then becomes its first secretary. And for the next 25 years, he and the European Research Group become prime movers behind Brexit. Mm. The other key think tank in pushing Brexit over the decades was the Bruise Group. It was founded at Oxford by a 20-year-old undergraduate called Patrick Robertson, who then left Oxford to, to run it. Margaret Thatcher became its honorary president as soon as she stepped down. So a huge amount of the intellectual energy, the pioneers of Brexit, are at Oxford at the end of the 80s.
3: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.